0: All right, good morning, Randolph Street family. It is good to have you here this morning, our 11 a.m. Randolph Street family. Thank you for those uh, those of you joining us online this morning. We are glad you have chosen to join us. Likewise, before I say anything, before we get into announcements, before I read, you are here this morning for one purpose, all right? You probably had a busy morning, a lot of things going on in life, you're inundated with information and news, whatever else, you are here this morning to worship. And I pray that as you've gotten out of bed, you've had your breakfast, whatever's been going on in your life this morning, you have prepared your hearts for this grand and glorious cause that God has called us to here this morning together as a church. So may God grant that as we gather. May we have hearts that desire to worship our God together. A few announcements, if you'll grab your bulletin with me. Just very quickly, a couple of things I want to run through. We have our Unity of the Bible seminar this evening. It starts at 7 p.m. I'm teaching through uh, this particular class this evening. I'm walking through some of the Old Testament covenants. It begins at 7. We'll go to about 8 8 p.m. We would love to have you join us. Uh, This has been a three- or four-part series thus far I think you can still find those online, but uh, we would love to have you join us this evening at 7 o'clock. Please note the announcement about the poinsettias. We do this yearly, uh, and we often struggle because we're all last-minute responders, right? So if you could get your information in soon about the poinsettias, uh, we would love to have your participation in that. This Wednesday evening, 7 o'clock, Pastor Tim will be doing a ministry update. I really encourage you to join uh, our online opportunities for this, these uh, ministry updates. He'll be interviewing uh, Jared Belcher, who's a pastor at First Baptist Church of Williamson, West Virginia. Jared is one of our partner pastors. I had the opportunity of preaching conference last weekend with Jared. He is a wonderful brother doing a good work in a very difficult place. Pastor Tim will be interviewing him. Uh, That will be live on Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock. Note the baptism membership class. Your prayer guide is located on the back table. You'll also receive that tomorrow morning via email. Uh, That uh, prayer guide will focus these next couple of months on introducing you to and praying for our elders and deacons. So I'd really encourage you to grab that as you have opportunity. There will be a student ministry Bible study beginning not this week, but the, uh, the following week. Uh, We'll get information about that out uh, via the email this coming week and to all of our uh, teen moms and dads that are out there. Okay, with all that said, let me turn our attention now to Psalm 86. Let us hear the word of God as we prepare to worship this morning. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good, forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. That's a good text to settle into our hearts as we prepare to worship this God this morning. Let's take a few moments and quietly prepare our hearts for worship. Father, we gather here this morning to lift up praise and adoration to you, our glorious and holy God. Let the thoughts of this psalmist stir our hearts this morning. Let us affirm with him that there is no one like you among the gods, O Lord. No one does works like yours help us as the psalmist calls all the nations this morning to come before you and to worship and to glorify your name let us set our minds up on you this day o god for you are great and you do wondrous things let every person in this room affirm the truth of psalm 88 verse 10 you alone are god May that settle in us this morning. Remind us that we are called today as your creatures and those those whom you have redeemed, we are called today to bring before you adoration and sacrifices of praise. May that be our heart. I pray for those joining us online this morning, those who continue to walk through difficult seasons. Lord, that you, in spite of our distance apart, that you would minister to them, strengthen their hearts, build them up in this most holy faith. Thank you, Father, for this privilege. Bless now as your people gather to worship
1: you, our God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. At this time in the service, I invite you as a church family to join with the church throughout the ages and around the world in confessing our faith together. Our confession this morning is from the Baptist Catechism, questions 59 and 60. Question 59, which is the third commandment? The third commandment is, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Question 60, what is required in the third commandment the third commandment requires the holy and reverent use of god's name titles attributes ordinances words and works god almighty transcendent above even our greatest imaginations he is the holiest the very definition of holy He is the most righteous, the definition of righteousness. He's the most wise, the most knowledgeable, the definition of wisdom and knowledge. He is all powerful. He is all good. And yet God the Father sent God the Son to humble himself and take the form of man and to breathe the dust of this earth to be obedient, even unto death, the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. A reading from John's first epistle.
2: A reading from the Gospel of Matthew. So seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It was 2013,
0: if I remember correctly, when we first sang that song here at Randolph Street, and we were walking through... A difficult season as a church, I was walking through a difficult situation as a pastor. Now, I remember Sean introduced that song, and it became just a bomb to our souls. And we would sing that song quite often back in those days, 13 or 14, right around that time, six, seven years ago, and there was not a time we would sing that song. It just did not overwhelm us about the faithfulness of Christ toward his people. Well, for our reading of the sermon text this morning, open your Bibles to two places to get you ready. All right, first, open to Romans chapter 9. Hold your place there. I will be preaching from Ephesians chapter 1. You need to find both spots. I will be reading Ephesians chapter 1 for the reading of our sermon text. Today is the second part of our Doctrine Matters series. Last month, it was introduced by Stephen Wellam from Southern Seminary. As he preached on the doctrine of the Trinity, it's kind of a foundational truth, if you will, for all of theology and all of life, and we're going to see that a little bit in Ephesians chapter 1 in just a moment. Today, I will be preaching on the doctrine of election. I've already done this one time today, so let me pre-warn you, buckle in, if you will. Pastor Tim will be preaching our December Doctrine Matters sermon. And that will be on the doctrine of hell. So right between Thanksgiving and Christmas in 2020, we thought it might be appropriate just to give you the doctrine of hell, right? Maybe that's best. But it's election week, so I thought I would preach on the doctrine of election. Two very, very different things. We'll get there. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse number 3, we will only read through verse number 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, we should be holy blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Join with me. Let us pray together. Father, as we hear your word this morning, it is our desire to not simply be hearers, of the word but we want to believe your word today we are asking you O god to use your word this morning to strengthen your people this is a difficult text this is a difficult doctrine yet in your wisdom and in your grace you have chosen to reveal this to your people so help us now to not only understand this truth but I would ask that you would help us to rest in this truth. Lord, you are full of mercy. You are full of grace. Help us now as we study your words, strengthen your people, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.
1: Job 42, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without wisdom? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I, have, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes.
0: Thank you, Keith, for ministering to us today. That song, in light of its truth, is very appropriate with the sermon this morning, with your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 1, and I trust a marker in Romans chapter 9. This morning, our subject in this Doctrine Matters series is the doctrine of election, and let me Let me give you a warning about this particular truth or this particular sermon. It can stir emotions. All right, This is a truth that can kind of turn us inside out, if you will, and cause deep, profound emotions to overwhelm our souls. I'm okay with that as we walk into this particular sermon today. My my prayer is that in a few moments when we come to these tables you will be utterly overwhelmed by God and by who he is and by his unearned act of mercy and grace that he has bestowed upon you. I hope this truth does not drive you away from God, but I hope this truth drives you on your knees before God today. I've shared with you my journey on this particular truth before in a variety of settings my wife and i when we moved to seminary in 1997 we we were confronted by and we were wrestling with the absolute sovereignty of god over all things including our salvation And we wept over this. We, we sat in a living room. I shared with, again, I've shared with you this before, but we sat in a living room in Virginia Beach and we wrestled through these truths and we were challenged by these. It stirred such emotion in me. Probably if I captured it well, there, there was a sense of bitterness that rose up in my heart. I was challenged in my view of God. I was challenged in my view of the gospel. I was challenged in my view of the doctrine of salvation as a whole. And it was a process that I wrestled with and struggled with. I remember while I was in seminary, I I made ice cream. That was my job when I moved down there. I I worked on a Mennonite dairy farm, Berge's dairy farm. And I made, they had the best ice cream in Virginia. Not because I made it, because I guess they had good milk. I don't know. It was good ice cream. And one day I was driving in 1997 to work and and every morning I could catch John MacArthur on a local Christian radio and I was really excited because I was wrestling through through these truths, and he was just beginning a series through Ephesians, the text that we're looking at here in just a moment, and I listened, he had like eight sermons in the first two verses, and it it took like a week and a half to get through the first two verses, but then the morning of, I was anticipating verse three and following, I was so excited about this, I get in my car, I can almost take you to the spot on Greenbrier Parkway, which I was driving, when I turned my radio on, here we go, MacArthur, Doctrine of Election, and this local Christian, radio station skipped from verse 2 all the way to verse 15 and did not let him preach this truth publicly i was so disappointed it was one of those moments i was wrestling my own heart through texts just like this i've preached this sermon before to illustrate how it can stir emotions In two thousand and eight in the fall, we did a massive renovation here. This was a courtyard. We recarpeted, repainted every other piece of this building. And for six weeks we moved out of this facility. We met at the Clay Center. We met in the the, kind of the atrium or the 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 intro area there. It was it was a glorious six weeks. God had been moving in our church in unique and powerful ways. We gathered up there and we filled that little area up and we worshiped. And then we finished our renovation. And I thought, you know, I'm going to preach Ephesians 1, first Sunday back in the new renovated room. And I opened the text. in this sermon, I don't re preach many sermons because typically I don't like the first time I preach through it. I, I, I was going to open Ephesians 1, I was going to preach the doctrine of election, and my goal in all that is is the goal at the end of this sermon today, I was going to set forth before our people that God moves in our lives, he saves us, and he saves us for his glory, and I preached my soul out that morning in Ephesians chapter 1. The next morning, Monday morning, I'm sitting in my office, and the door comes flying open. An individual, I I I think it's been long enough, I can tell this story now, the individual who opened the door, his face was red, his head was red, and he looked at me and he said, if you believed what you preached yesterday, I will never walk in this church again. And he slammed my door and he walked out and he's never walked in again. Now, before I go any further, I will not be in my office Monday morning. Okay? This truth can stir deep emotions. While I was on that journey in 1997, I picked up a copy of John Owen's book entitled The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. Owen was a Puritan. He was writing on the substitutionary work of Christ. It's effectual work for us. The book is okay. The introduction is worth its weight in gold, written by J.R. Packer. He writes this. The subject of the old gospel was God and his ways with men. Now, in Packer's view as he's introducing this work, he, he's thinking about the old gospel being the biblical gospel, the apostolic gospel. He writes, The subject of the old gospel was about God and his ways with men. The subject of the new gospel, what the church has kind of manipulated, if you will, he says the subject of the new gospel is man and the help God gives him. You hear the the differences there? He writes, there is a world of difference. The whole perspective and emphasis of gospel preaching has changed. From this change of interest has sprung a change of content. For the new gospel has in effect reformulated the biblical message in supposed interest of quote-unquote helpfulness. Accordingly, themes of man's natural inability to believe, of God's free election being the ultimate cause of salvation, of Christ dying specifically for his sheep, are not preached. These doctrines, it would be said, are not helpful because they drive sinners to despair by suggesting to them that it is not in their own power to be saved through Christ. Well, just to stop there for a second, that's exactly what we want sinners to experience in this room. We want the gospel to be preached so freely. And that includes the doctrine of election. We want it to be preached so freely that sinners and even Christians in and of ourselves, we are brought to despair. He continues. However this may be, the result of these omissions is that part of the biblical gospel is now preached as if it were the whole of the gospel. And this is classic Packer. A half-truth masquerading as a whole truth becomes a complete untruth. Thus, we appeal to men as if they all had the ability to receive Christ at any time. Let me stop a second before I read these next couple. See if this is your experience of the gospel. We appeal to men as if they have the ability in and of themselves to receive Christ at any time. We speak of his redeeming work as if he had done no more by dying than to make it possible for us to save ourselves. We speak of God's love as if it were no more than general, a general willingness to receive any who will turn and trust. And we depict the Father and the Son not as sovereignly active in drawing sinners to themselves, but as waiting in quiet impotence at the door of our hearts for us to let them in. That is the contemporary gospel, and that is a false gospel. Packer got it in that first sentence. The subject of the old gospel, the biblical gospel, and you're going to see it in our text this morning, is that of God and his ways with men, not of man and the help that God gives him. The gospel is about God, and the gospel is for the glory of God, and that must settle into our hearts and shape our lives. In that introduction, Packer would say, I remember this when I read it the first time. Some say, I owe my election to my faith. While others rightly say, I owe my faith to my election. You hear that? That's what Luke ascribes for us. We've been reading through the missionary journeys, right? We've been talking about how the gospel spread throughout Asia and Europe. We're right in the middle of the gospel spreading out of Jerusalem and Antioch, and thousands coming to Christ right in the middle of all of that narrative. Luke gives for us a theological commentary. He wants you, the reader, to understand how so many Gentiles are believing in Jesus. He wants you to understand what's happening behind all of that. And here's what he says. Acts chapter 13, verse... Verse number 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. There it is. The Gentiles heard the preaching of the gospel. As soon as they heard it, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Lord. And then it says this. Here it is. Here's the theological commentary. You can't do any hermeneutical jumping jocks to circumvent what this text means. Here it is. As many as had been appointed to eternal life Believed. You hear that? Luke gives us a theological commentary on what's happening when so many come to faith. Those who were appointed to eternal life, they believe. In other words, I owe my faith to my election. That is the subject of the old gospel, as Parker calls it. And in 1997, I turned my world upside down. I thought, I may not have said this, I thought the gospel was about me. Here's your outline for this morning. There's four points. I'm gonna spend most of my time on the first point. The ground of election, the timing of election, the fruit of election and the purpose of election. The ground, the tom, the fruit, the purpose. Before I get into those four points, let me offer up to you a definition of, again, in this Doctrine Matters series, as we look at these broader text, larger sections of scripture on a specific teaching. Today, we're looking at the doctrine of election. Let me give you what I think is a biblical definition, then we're gonna flesh this out in the next few moments. Election is the biblical teaching that God chooses whom He would save. In other words, salvation, to use the old testament Ketchlan, is of the Lord. Election is the biblical teaching that God chooses whom he would save it is the unconditional choice of god it rests only in his will and his purpose and not in the merit of the sinner in this doctrine god sets his affection up on a people to redeem that's the doctrine of election the biblical teaching that God chooses whom he will save Ephesians chapter 1 let's take a few moments before we come to the table and walk through this biblical doctrine the ground of election look back at verse number 4 our our focus text is really verse 4 5 and 6 this morning Paul writes, this is is a lengthy sentence in the original Greek. So from verse 3 through verse 14 is one sentence. And it's really this theological launching point for Paul as he moves into the book of Ephesians. There's no introduction in the New Testament like this introduction. In verses 3 through 14, Paul's going to capture the the triune work of God. He's going to set before us, if you will, the work of the Father and the work of the Son and the work of the Spirit. He's going to put all that right up on the front burner for us as readers. And if you know anything about Randolph Street, you know we love that little phrase that appears three times in this text. To the praise of his glory. All right, so Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 14 is about the work of the triune God in saving sinners. And the ultimate end, which we're going to come back to in just a moment, is the praise of his glory. Verse number 4. He chose us, he referring to God the Father, verse 3. He chose us in him, referring to Jesus Christ, verse 3, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Here's a really important phrase according to the purpose of his will. Okay, so here's what I want to do with this first point I want to talk about the ground of election or, or the ground that this truth, this doctrine stands up on. It's obvious, but notice in verse 4, this verb, He chose as a subject, referring back to God the Father, reminding us here that God is the sole active party in this doctrine. This is the work of God. It is him and him alone that chooses here in this text before the foundation of the world. Look down at verse number 5, if you would. An important little phrase I noted there. According to the purpose of his will. He's going to pick up two big thoughts here. He chooses us in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption as sons. And then he brings behind all of that according to the purpose of his will. Other translations will translate that according to the good pleasure of his will. In other words... His choice is grounded in and rooted in his own counsel, his own will. The choice flows from him, not outside of him. There's no influence or pressure upon him as he makes this choice. It is grounded and rooted only in him, and as this text says, the purpose of his will. The choice flows out of his eternal counsel and will. Now, I'd ask you to have Romans 9 open. So if you would save your place in Ephesians, but flip back to Romans 9. We're going to spend most of our time on this first point. Romans chapter nine, beginning at verse number 10. You're talking about emotional text. When I preached through this at Randolph Street, five, six years ago, whatever it was, I was sick in my stomach about three or four Sundays in a row when I walked into this pulpit. You've, you've had, if you've played any kind of sports, you've had those coaches that will push you to your end and then when you get to their end, they push you way beyond that and you're exhausted, you're spent, you're done. That's how I felt, and I think that's how we felt collectively when we walked through Romans 9 together. Look at verse number 10, midstream. Not only this, but when Rebekah had also conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, parentheses, for the children not yet being born, this is important, nor having done any evil or good, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works but of him who calls crucially important parentheses it was said to her the older to Rebecca the older shall serve the younger as it is written Jacob I have loved but Esau I have hated and now a question arises that Paul wants to address what shall we say then is there unrighteousness with God well, let me stop a second. You have, you have to admit that Paul did not duck hard issues, did he? I mean, I mean, Paul steps right into this deep mystery of the doctrine of election. And not only does Paul not dodge issues, Paul doesn't dodge hard questions. Because what flows out of verse 11 and 13, the children are not even born yet. They've done no good, no evil. Verse 13, Jacob I have loved, Esau have hated. The obvious question that flows out of those two statements is this Is God unrighteous? He chooses before they were born. He loves Jacob, but he hates Esau. So the question is that, that will arise in any reader of this text, it should arise in our hearts does that make God unrighteous? Well, look at verse 15. Paul responds to this question, nothing like the teacher who asks the question and then answers it, right? He says to Moses, and then he quotes Exodus 33, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. It's interesting because when you read this, you think there's going to be a different answer come from Paul. I mean, really, his answer seems to be a restatement of the problem. If the perceived problem is that salvation is dependent upon God, notice Paul's answer. Salvation depends upon God. You would almost expect Paul to offer up a softer answer. And I think that's what happens often in churches when it comes to this particular doctrine. We think maybe that we know better than God, so we offer up soft answers. You've heard numerous preachers say this, soft truth makes what? Hard hearts. Hard truth makes what? Soft hearts. The truth that Paul presents in this text is this. God determines who receives mercy. That's the astounding reality here. God determines who receives mercy. I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I will have compassion. This This is God speaking. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. All deserve wrath. All deserve judgment. But God chooses who will receive mercy. Verse 16 kind of restates verse 11. Human effort is not the basis by which grace and mercy are received. God's electing act is rooted only in God and his counsel and his will and his purpose. We may think God owes us something. I guess what we wrestle with. I know for me personally. In 1997, I think that was probably behind my wrestling, if you will, thinking God owes me something that just I think it's a natural reality of being born in the likeness of my earthly father, Adam. I think God owes me something, and in some sense, God does owe me something. Now, hear what I say here: What God owes me is wrath for my disobedience, but he resolves that in Christ. What God doesn't owe me, and what is explicit in this text, is mercy. He chooses to show mercy. Look at verse 17. The scripture says to Pharaoh, now he's going to Exodus 9. For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show you my power, that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, and here we go again, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, here's the next question, why does he find fault then? Who has resisted his will? Right? He, so, so he offers his up, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. So the natural response to that kind of statement is, is God fair? How can he find fault? I mean, what's stunning truth for us this morning? This, is, this isn't hidden truth. It's, it's plain in the scriptures. It's, it's right up front for us. God has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. God actively grants mercy to some. That's the doctrine of election. And he actively withholds mercy from others. That is what it means when he says, whom he wills, he hardens. R.C. Sproul, and only the way R.C. Sproul can do things, he helps us understand this little sort of phrase. He writes about God hardening sinners. God passes over and leaves them to their own devices. He does not intrude, but instead leaves them to walk in their own path of destruction god does not have to create any more evil in anyone's heart all he has to do is remove his restraints from it but 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 hear this and this goes back to the, to the ground of election it is god's will it is God's counsel. It is God's purpose. He is the active and sole agent in the doctrine of election. He sets his mercy up on whomever he wills. That is the clear, irrefutable teaching of Revelation, or excuse me, Romans chapter 9. Look down at verse number 20, if you would. Here's some positional correction going on now. Okay. You know, I, I talk about wrestling with... It's like Paul's wrestling with you, the reader, too. He's going to do some positional correction now for us. Look at what he says. But indeed, old man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor? And one for dishonor? Tread lightly. This is deep truth. But it cannot be clearer. There's a positional correction going on in our mindset and how we approach God and how we, how we think about God and how we think about salvation, how we think about mercy, how we think about grace. The writer here, Paul, the inspired writer, says to us that God is the potter and we are the clay And the potter carries the full rights to form the clay as he wills. I'm calling that positional correction. That we fall under God and we understand who God is. And I don't need to press this analogy very far as Paul is pressing it into our lives, but the the clay has no right to look back at the potter and say, why have you formed me this way? The potter carries all authority and all supremacy and all sovereignty over that piece of clay. God is absolutely sovereign over whom he grants mercy to. is a blunt reminder in Romans chapter 9 the foundation of the doctrine of election is not outside of God the ground of election is his counsel and his will alright let's move forward go back to Ephesians chapter 1 the timing of election this is important it will kind of piggyback on what I just said regarding the ground of election Ephesians chapter 1 even as he chose us verse number 4 in Christ, and then he's going to set out when God made this decree before the foundation of the world so when did God choose now it can be clear here, before the world was created before you or I existed before we performed any works, I mean it's exactly what he's saying back earlier about Jacob and Esau before they had done any good or any evil, God chose. This is similar language to what Paul will use in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He writes, speaking of this gospel, it's God, he says, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. I mean, the, the biblical authors are going to make sure you understand that. Not according to your works. They're going to... Hyperventilate, if you will, to help you understand this is outside of you. There's nothing in you that's bringing out God's choice. There's, there's no merit within you as the sinner. As a matter of fact, the only thing in you that draws God to is your sin and his judgment. Then he says, but according, not according to your works, but according to his purpose and grace, which he granted us in Christ Jesus from all Eternity. There it is. From before the foundation of the world. This is the timing, if you will, of God's decree. So it moves his decree outside of temporal realities or our works. It moves us outside of that. From before the creation of the world, God, in his sovereignty and in his counsel, set forth this decree of what we are calling the biblical doctrine of election. Spurgeon in his own ways, would write this. I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm quite sure that he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. He must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I can never find any reason in myself why he should have looked up on me with special love. He's right. God's decree is before Tom, before creation, before we were born. It's not rooted in us. It's not drawn out by who we are, what we might merit. And as Spurgeon said here, I'm quite sure that he chose me before I was born, or else he would never have chosen me after I was born. Let's look at the fruit of election. Back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 4. He chose us in Him from before the foundation of the world. And then here's, here's a purpose clause that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. And then He comes right back to this. He predestined us, same idea here. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So, so Paul here is going to identify two realities, two, two fruits, if you will, of this eternal decree of God to save and to demonstrate and to show mercy and compassion. First, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Now what is recognized in these words is that outside of him, we are unholy and blameworthy. But those whom God sets his affection up on receive all the benefits of salvation. You don't have to turn to this, but Romans chapter 8 kind of, kind of brings this home to us. Verse 29 and 30. For whom he foreknew, let me bring some clarity to this little word, foreknew. Those whom God had set his covenant, loyalty, and affection up on before Tom. That's what that means. Those whom God had set his affection upon. This this foreknowledge is not pointing to the tunnels of Tom where God looks at you and sees you respond, and then he, out of that, chooses you. We've cleared that up. But listen to what he says now. Romans chapter 8. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, those whom God set his covenant love upon, he pours out upon them the fullness of all the blessings of salvation. He's not simply saving us from our sins in this decree of election. That's, that's a part of it, but it's bigger than that. He's, he's forming us and conforming us to the image of his Son. Ephesians chapter 1 is concerned with that. Romans chapter 8 is concerned with that. God's purpose in election is to form us more and more into the image of his Son. For those of you walking through difficult times... And, and right now our church is experiencing so many different families are walking through just horrific seasons of life, hard seasons. One of the glories of this truth is that God in eternity past, if you're a believer in Christ here this morning, God in eternity past decreed that he would conform you to the image of his son. And now everything that happens in your life Everything. You heard this in the song Keith was singing just a moment ago. Everything that is happening in your life, God is working that decree out as he forms and conforms you to the image of Christ. My brothers, that's a way to live. To embrace that truth. It's not only that though. Look at verse number 5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. So, so there's this positional reality, this practical reality. He, he's, he's forming in us holiness, conformity to Christ, but there's this loving, familial, relational side of election also. He's predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters. This is what J.R. Packer calls the host privilege of the gospel, to be called sons and daughters of God. And this is what God decreed for us. If you're a parent or a teacher, coach, and you're investing in the life of a young person, it's one thing to hold them at a distance. And it's helpful to hold them at a distance and teach them and instruct them, to disciple them, to mentor them. And God's doing that for us. Grounded in this decree of election, God is doing that for us. He's, he's shaping us. He's forming us more like Christ. But it's bigger than that. He predestined us likewise to be adopted as sons and daughters. So it's, it's not that God holds us out here and lectures us and forms us and mentors us. God brings us in, if you will, into this unique relationship as we are called sons and daughters. And God is called Father. That's why Packer says, this is the highest privilege of the daughter, of, of, of the gospel. I wake up and I can say I'm a son or I'm a daughter of God. Formerly, I was a child of wrath. I was a son of disobedience. But now, because of God's eternal decree, I am adopted into his family. It is the highest privilege of the gospel. This is my father. And it is grounded in his decree. The doctrine of election. I should have just let Packer preach this sermon, I guess. He would say this if you want to know how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. Then he writes, If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and the whole outlook of his life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. In eternity past, God decreed that he would bring you the sinner, close. And he would transform you from being an enemy of God and a child of wrath to being his son and his daughter. The very core of this eternal decree as God set his affection up on you was to bring you into this close familial relationship. The purpose of election, verse number six, If you've been at Randolph Street very long, you know all about this. He predestined us, verse 5. He chose us, verse 4. Why? Well, there's all kinds of sub-reasons. We just hit a couple of them. Conformity to Christ, adoption. Uh, I'm calling those sub-reasons for a moment because this is the ultimate reason, verse number 6. To the praise of his glorious grace. Why did God show mercy upon you? If you're a believer here in Christ this morning, why has God shown mercy upon you today? It's not because of anything that's in you. Hopefully you see that now. But he has done so to display his glorious grace among you. God shows his grace to turn our hearts and our attention to the praise of his glorious grace. Election, this doctrine that we are speaking of this morning, begins with sovereign grace and it ends with the praise of that sovereign grace. God has shown mercy on you. Decreed from before the creation of the world, God has shown mercy upon you so that you could display his glory. If you've got your Bible still open to Ephesians 1, look over to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse number 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, there it is again, he's just making sure you understand there's nothing in you Made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So here Paul moves us outside of temporal time. He moves us outside of this world. He moves us into eternity future, and he shows us what God is doing. Why has God taken you, those who were dead in trespasses and sins, and shown you mercy so that you might be a trophy of his grace for all eternity? The angels and all the redeemed will look up on you in the new heavens and the new earth, and what will they see? They will see the grace of God. He chooses. He wills. He predestines. Why? For the praise of his glory. Brothers and sisters, this is a hard doctrine. I hope as you hear this this morning, it doesn't drive you away from God. That was my response in 1997. I wrestled. I wanted to walk, walk away from this truth. I wanted to get away from it as quickly as I can. But I hope what this truth does is doesn't, it doesn't drive you away from God this morning. What my prayer is, is that it puts you on your knees before God this day and that your heart would swell up with joy and adoration and appreciation and gratitude and thanksgiving to God. If you're a Christian here this morning, if you are saved, born again, you are so because of God and His grace. That's the answer. That's why He deserves the glory for your salvation. In a moment, we're going to come to these tables. And as we walk to these tables, we're going to be reminded, as we do each time, our elders will say to you, this is his body, and this is his blood. And you're, you're going to be distinctly reminded this morning, once again, that Christ has died for you. If you're a believer in Christ this morning, he has died for you. And in light of this truth, in light of Ephesians 1 and Romans 9, let us come to these tables this morning with deep humility knowing that this mercy of which we have experienced is of God and we have merited nothing. It is his grace and it is for his glory. I'm gonna ask our elders to come and prepare the tables if they would, our deacons to find their places to prepare to dismiss our folks row by row. Let me pray and ask for the Lord's blessings upon this time. Father as we now prepare to walk to these tables I would pray that we do so with hearts that have been deeply affected by your grace and your mercy hearts full of gratitude and thanksgiving because you in your eternal decree have chosen to display your mercy and grace in our lives. Let that truth settle in our hearts and in our souls. For those who love Christ, may that truth prepare our hearts to live lives for the glory of you, our God. Thank you for these tables and what they represent. Help us to Be mindful, the cup, the bread. Let us renew our faith in Christ as we walk to these tables and receive these elements. And as always, may you be glorified in your people as we partake. We pray this in Jesus' name, and amen. Well, in 1997, I wrestled and struggled. If you find yourself wrestling and struggling through this truth of Scripture, we would love to have an opportunity to sit down and talk with you to read the Scriptures with you. Many have asked over the last twenty years, "What what book do you should I read?" And there's all kinds of good books, but my reply is always the same: Read the Scriptures. Just bury yourself in the scriptures look out over the next three and five years ask god to show himself to you and he will be faithful to that end through the scriptures we are here always available for you call us text us email us we would love to sit talk with you and to help you to the best of our abilities well maybe appropriately so we turn our attention to revelation chapter 21 this morning And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and the people of God reply, Amen. Amen.